John chapter 6. Let's read through the first 14 verses of John chapter 6 together this morning, and then we'll glean some lessons from this great miracle. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word and we see one of your great miracles, may we see the lessons, may we learn its truths this morning so that we can apply and live in greater faith for you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now our text here begins in verse 1 with after these things and we're not exactly sure when that is because depending on uh, chapter 5 verse 1 when uh, John says that there is a feast and we're not sure which, that, which feast that is so depending on which feast it is there could be anywhere between 6 and 12 months that's elapsed between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. So there's an extended period of time here of ministry between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of John. Some of the things that have taken place during then are recorded in the other Gospels. One of those things is John the Baptist is imprisoned and beheaded and Matthew tells us about those in that, that time. Luke says just coming up to this event, Jesus has sent the 12 apostles out throughout the cities on their own to minister and to preach and to do miracles. So they've been traveling around for some time on their preaching tour. Uh, so amongst those things and many others, it's certain that these last 6 to 12 months have been very intense times. They've been busy ministering and seeing much of the work of God. And so here, as we read the passage in chapter 6, we see Jesus takes his disciples, having been ministering for a while, and goes up into the mountain to try and find a little quiet time to, together to find some, some rest and some quiet to be able to minister to them. Perhaps this is designed as a debrief for them 
after they've been on their preaching tour and they can talk about what God has done and Jesus can teach them over the events of the last days and, and weeks together. But as they there, they, they sail and they take a little boat and they sail across the, the sea there up to Bethsaida, and, uh, which is northeast end of the lake. If you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you can find where, where that is. John tells us that we're getting close to the time of Passover, verse 4 tells us that. So the cities and the towns around are beginning to grow as pilgrims travel and move their way toward Jerusalem as, as uh, Passover approaches. And so they're getting close now as we come to this and this coming Passover. We are getting very close to the last year of Jesus' ministry. So we're almost at the end here as Jesus is ministering. And the significant portion of John's gospel is due to that, it's about the last year, especially the last week or so. And so we're getting very close to that in terms of timeline here. The ministry in Galilee, the northern section of Israel, is starting to come to a close. And Jesus is going to start moving down uh, very purposefully toward Jerusalem to minister there as the time of his death approaches. Verse 2, of course, tells us here, a great multitude followed him. This has, has been, as they've gone along, people keep gathering and gathering. In uh, Mark, uh, in the parallel passage in Mark, we're told this, and the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and outwent him, outran him and came together under him. So they see Jesus and the disciples get in the boat and take a sail. It's not a large lake, and I'm told as you, and maybe some of you have seen it, you can stand on one shore and you can see the boats out there. They see Jesus sailing across, and they think, well, we're going, we're going to get him. So they start running around the lake, and they go so quick that they beat Jesus who is sailing across the lake. And by the time he gets to the other side, this great multitude is waiting for him. So the quiet time Jesus is hoping to have isn't going to eventuate at this time. Jesus spends that day preaching and ministering to the needs of the people. Uh, in Luke and Mark, it tells us that, that it's coming to the end of the day. The day is far spent as they, they come and, and the people are getting weary. After this long day, well, after these several long days for Jesus and his disciples who've been ministering and, and working, the evening comes and the disciples are ready to go. And many of us know that. You have long days of service or work and, and you get to the end of the day and think, oh, I just want to go home. I just want to have a rest, especially when it involves lots of people. You think, I'm so tired. I just want to be alone for a while. And I suspect that's where the disciples are, the apostles are, are thinking here. And in this moment, when everyone is tired, when the day has come to the end, and Jesus has spent all of his time ministering, we see Jesus perform one of his greatest and most well-known miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. This miracle will set the scene for what we'll see just a little bit later in John 6, where Jesus tells us that he is the bread of life. This will play into that idea just a little bit. Now, the episode that we have here, so many of us look and we see the amazing miracle that Jesus performs, but the emphasis and the focus of this passage, as we always say, is not the miracle itself, but what the miracle was intended to do. The focus of this miracle is the disciples, the 12. Jesus has something he is teaching 
these men. So let's examine what happens here as Jesus performs this miracle, this miraculous meal. The first thing that we notice is that we find ourselves, or the disciples find themselves, in a place of crisis. A place of crisis. Verse 5 says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And he said, this he said, to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus creates a crisis here, a crisis moment. And in this moment, he is going to assume responsibility for what happens. Of course, we, we know it's been a long day. It's now getting to, to evening. The people had chased Jesus around and followed him over there. Many of them, of course, it tells us in verse 2, are not there for the right reasons. They're there because they want to see tricks. They want to see the miracles that Jesus does or hear him say some new thing that they haven't heard before. So they're there for something different. But Jesus sees through all that. He sees through the reasons that they're there to appeal to, to their, their senses and see the miracles. And we're told that he looks on them with compassion. Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, it says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. So he looks out on this great crowd that he's been spending the whole day with. He's tired. They're tired. They're there probably for the wrong reasons, most of them. And Jesus looks on this crowd with compassion. Now, his compassion is more than just sympathy. It's not just that he feels sorry for them, it's deeper than that. As he looks out on this crowd, he recognizes a need. And in recognizing the need, he is going to act on that need. Now, he could have sent them away. He could have very easily sent them away. And my suspicion is that's probably what the disciples were hoping for. That at the end of the day, or they ask, say, they send them into the towns around, let them go back home or let them go nearby and find some food for themselves, find a place to stay, and we can finally have our peace. So Jesus could have done that. There's no reason why he couldn't have done that from a practical perspective. He could have just sent them all away. The greatest lessons and the greatest works that God does in our life always seem to come at the most inconvenient times, don't they? Here the disciples are tired, tired of the people, tired of the work, ready to have some alone time, and Jesus makes the circumstances worse. No, I'm not going to send them away. We're going to do something else. That's very often how God works in our lives all the time, is that what seems to us to be the most inconvenient, the most inappropriate times is when God is doing his greatest work in our life, teaching us the greatest lessons. So Jesus brings about a crisis. Jesus' timing for the lessons often seem to be at those worst moments. They're exhausted from the day of ministry. They had no provisions to feed the people with. And so as we see in Matthew chapter 14, repeats something similar to what it says in John, but Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, you give them to eat. So the disciples come and say, Jesus, we need to send them away so they can find something to eat. And Jesus says, no, they don't need to go. You give them something to eat. In that moment, Jesus has deliberately created a crisis. 
He has deliberately put them in a place of trouble for his disciples. Jesus would do the work, but he would be bringing his disciples to be personally invested in it, to be part of what he is doing. Verse 6, of course, tells us that when Jesus created this crisis, when Jesus says to them, you feed them, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He already knew. The plan was set. Reminds me that this is very often like we think of prayer. So many people have asked me, says, why do we pray when God already knows what he can do and God can do whatever? Why do we pray when he's going to do what he wants? For this very same reason. God knows what he's going to do, but he has something to teach us in the process of doing it. And this is exactly what he's doing for the disciples. He puts them in a place of crisis, already knowing what he is going to do, but going to teach them a lesson as he does it. He could have done this all on his own. There's no reason why he couldn't. He could have just created it. He could have done it on his own, but he doesn't. We notice again that this was not the disciples' idea. The disciples didn't say, Jesus, feed them. Or Jesus, what are we going to do to help them? They say, Jesus, send them away. And Jesus says, don't send them away. This is his idea for them. You can see they knew they couldn't do this. The whole passage goes and they understand they're well outside of their, their depth. But working with God and being part of God's process and what he has for us to do puts us in a place to realize that we cannot do it on our own. That where God has put us, we cannot accomplish what needs to be done on our own. If he does not do a work, we will fail. I'm using crisis in the sense of a a place of decision. A time where we must make a decision one way or another. A place where we must act, a turning point in our life, where a a moment, a situation, a circumstance arises and we must do something about it. That crisis moment, a place where we must make a decision. When I was very young, my parents grew up in in a town that had a big mountain on the outside of it and I remember they took us up there one time and there was a, a place where it had this, this grass slope that sloped down the top of the mountain and then just ended. And we went up there and we'd sit uh, up there and watch these guys with hang gliders. And the guys would get their hang gliders and they would go running, running, running down the hill and off. There is a crisis point. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to get to a place down that hill where you cannot stop. You have to go. And this is where God very often puts us. If we're going to find out what God can do, if we're going to find out who God is, we've got to go and see what he can do. We see so many of these crisis points throughout the Bible. Joshua and Jericho. God tells Joshua, walk around the city. Why? God tells Gideon, you've got too many people. Whittle them down. You don't need that many men. You only need 300. This is the way God works. He brings us to a place where the crisis is, I do not have the resources, I do not have the abilities to do what I need to do. I must trust Jesus. 
I must do what he says. So here we see that Jesus is concerned about two things. Two things appear to be Jesus' concern here. One, because as we see, the miracle wasn't the disciples' idea, and Jesus is initiating this plan. We're reminded that, one, this, that, that this isn't, it isn't our job to come up with a plan. It's not your job to determine how things ought to work and what should happen. God already knows what he could do. It strikes me as interesting that out of all the miracles that Jesus does, out of everything that he did and said, this is the only miracle besides the resurrection which is recorded in all four Gospels. Clearly, this made a mark. Clearly, there was something very important in what took place here that meant all four Gospel writers decided this needed to be said. It's an important lesson to, to learn. Why? Well, two reasons, I think. Firstly, we see that Jesus meets the needs of the people. He sees people in need, and he's going to meet their need, not just their physical need. He's going to do that. He heals here, and he teaches, and that's what he does mostly here, is teaching. He is concerned about the needs of the people. And the second thing that seems to be his concern here is not just the needs of the people, but the second thing he seems to be concerned about is the strengthening of the disciples, to test the disciples. That's why he says he does it. Verse 6, and this he said, to test him, to prove him. It's interesting, as you read the Gospels and what follows this event, the things that follow this, this moment are all things which are designed to strengthen faith. So Jesus puts him through this crisis moment, and then he pushes it further. So in Luke, we're reminded of Jesus asking them, who do people say that I am? And then he talks to them about the cost of discipleship. We're told in other Gospels that just after this, after Jesus does that, Jesus goes and the disciples go out onto the water, and Jesus walks on water and meets them out there. We'll see that shortly. So after this event, Jesus doesn't just leave it, but he pushes them further so that they can define and decide and really grasp what is the lesson that's happening here? What does it mean to be a disciple, to trust Jesus? So he is cultivating faith in this moment. Now, not every crisis that comes into our life is a crisis by God's decree. That is, that God decrees this for our good, and it is, it is our, his purpose for us to endure that by his own decision. Sometimes we find ourselves in crisis because of our own stupidity and our own sin. But God will use those for our good too. But God always has a purpose. God uses both for our growth. Faith is built in crisis. That's when we learn to trust James says it this way, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire and wanting nothing. That is, God is going to put you through the furnace of trial to make you stronger, to make you better. One of our greatest needs is to grow in faith. The disciples ask Jesus at one point, they say to Jesus, 
Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could take this plant and have it cast into the sea. Because it's not about how big and how grand and how glorious your faith is, as if I have faith that is bursting out of me. The crisis that Jesus puts them in here is not to destroy them, but to build them up. It's not for them to say, oh God, you put me somewhere where you, you, you put me in a no-win situation. We're going to fail. It was so that they would look to Jesus and see that, of course, they were going to fail, but he wasn't. He was still going to work. See, our faith is not in a concept. Our faith is in a person. The great missionary of old to, to China, Hudson Taylor, said, not a great faith we need, but faith in a great God. It's not the faith, but the object of our faith. That is the key to what takes place. Crisis isn't just the world falling apart, but a place where we must learn to decide and learn to act in trust. So here, Jesus is not just putting him in a place of crisis for no reason. He's putting him in a place of crisis to produce character. So let's look at how this unfolds with some of the people involved here. The first person we see in verse 7 is Philip. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. I've called Philip calculating. He's the man who looks at the resources. He's looking at the human resources they have. Now think, remember, if you can, some of the, the things that have led to this event. Some of them we haven't seen in John, like the, the uh, wandering through the towns preaching. We're told in, in Luke that after they spend their time passing through all these towns and preaching, they come back in absolute strength and encouragement and praising God for what he has done through them. They were able to perform miracles. They were able to preach the gospel. And they are overflowing with joy for what God has done in just days before. They have seen in these past 6 to 12 months, they've seen God heal. They've seen people get saved. They've seen followers grow, genuine believers grow. They've seen amazing things all along the way. They have seen the power of God on display. Yet here, as they stand here in this moment, despite everything they've seen, despite everything they've been involved with, they still doubt. What are we going to do? even though they have seen God do amazing things. We can be difficult people that constantly need reminding, that constantly need pushing every step of the way in our faith. Jesus will now perform perhaps his greatest miracle and he will create essentially something from nothing. Your verse 7, Philip, uh, 200 denarii pennyworth is, is not sufficient for them that every one of them may, may take a little. So it tells us Philip is asked the question. So Philip doesn't go to Jesus and ask. Jesus asks Philip. That's in verse, verse 5 there. Jesus says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so they may eat? See how Jesus shifts it onto Philip? He didn't say, we're going to buy bread, or where can we buy bread? 
or how are we going to do it? He says to Philip, Philip, where are you going to get what we need? How are you going to do this? And Philip doesn't answer the question. He has, shall we say, and what's often said to be a pessimistic faith. He's too busy calculating in his head. Jesus says, how are we going to feed him? And Philip is immediately, well, you know, there's 5,000 men here. Oh, that much bread. I, I can't count that high, Jesus. There's, there's too much. Uh, we can't do it. There's no way we could possibly do this, Jesus. We don't have nearly enough money. I've checked with Judas. We've looked in the bag. There's not enough money in there. We can't buy the bread we need. And that's how many of us are. When God is doing his work, we're calculating. Do we have the money to do this? Do we have the resources available to accomplish what I need to do? What, what resources do I have available to me? How, how are we going to do this? How are we going to accomplish what God needs us to do and what God has is, is placed us in to do? How are we going to get it done? And it stresses the impossibility of the situation. We can't do it. We don't have, and then we get overwhelmed and despair with the meagerness of our resources. I don't have what I need. I'm not what I need to be. I, I, I can't accomplish this. And we're swamped by the hopelessness of the answer. I can't do it. In, in Philip, we see the person who doesn't see God, nor the power of God. Sure, like Philip, we profess Christ to be the Son of God, and we say that he has the power to meet needs. But when the time comes, we see the problem, and we don't see the power. We see that in many ways. We, we forget God's power and his work in our past. We forget what he has done for us, how he has carried us through, what he has done just days before. We fail even to think of God's power at the time. We don't even contemplate it. We're, we're too busy trying to figure out how we're going to make our circumstances work. Or maybe we come and we just we feel like, like this, this problem is, is too big even for God. This is huge. I don't know how we're going to do it. Or perhaps the flip side of that, where many of us find ourselves and we think, I'm in this circumstance, but the circumstance really is too little for God to be worried about. So clearly, I just have to do it myself. Feels God's power will fail, perhaps. What if? What if? I do what I believe God needs me to do and it doesn't work. My faith in God will be crushed. And this is how too many of us look. Or we look to others for help instead of God. The psalmist reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We fail to see God is glorified when he provides and meets the need. Then, after Philip, we find Andrew. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, 
Simon Peter's brother saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there's much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Here, Andrew, here's a man who loves the Lord and is committed to him, as are the other disciples. But faith isn't just do nothing and hope for change. So when we talk about faith, it's not about just sitting down and hoping that God will do something and make it all better. It seems that Andrew was active in this. Because he comes to Jesus and he says, there's a boy out there that has some food. It's not much, but there's a boy out there that has food. How does he know that? He's been looking. He's been looking to see what can we do. Maybe there's some resources amongst the crowd. Maybe somebody has food. And in all of his searching, he finds, well, there's a boy who has this small pouch. And it was just a small pouch. It's a little pouch they would carry on the side of their belt. Small little loaves, small little fishes. It was just meant to be a snack. That's all it was meant to be. And he says to Jesus, there's not much, but I've looked through the crowd and there's this boy. And even though it's not much, he still says it to Jesus. How many of us, if we were in more the, the, the mind of Philip, would have gone, oh, you know, there's this little boy out there and he's got this little pouch of food that's not even worth mentioning to Jesus. But Andrew says, Jesus, it's not much, but there's something. There's something there, and he lays what he has found before Jesus. He questioned its value. You know, he keeps reminding, he's telling us, you know, there's, there's 5,000 men here. It's not nearly enough for that. The, 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 the need is too big, and the resources are too small. And that's how most of us find ourselves in times of crisis, in times of faith. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just one person with not much influence. We're just a, a small church. Or I'm not gifted or talented. Or how can I be of value? The resources I have are just not enough. And often our thoughts on the littleness of the resources just deteriorate into complaining. But here Andrew has found this small resource Sure that it's not enough to do what needs to be done, but gives it to Jesus anyway. And then, of course, verse 9 tells us that the resources he found were from this boy. Just a young boy. All we know is he gave all he had. It was just a snack. But in his innocence, he gave it to Jesus and let Jesus have it. And we've spoken about this before. This is how Jesus wants us to come, in innocence, in dependence on him. Luke records it says, But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. The trust and the dependence of the child. Give what you have. It doesn't have to be much. Not much at all. When you give what you have to Jesus, he uses it in miraculous ways. 
Can you imagine, and this is just from my head, this isn't in scripture, this is just my imagining of, of what it would be like if it was me. Can you imagine if you were that young boy and you had given Jesus just the little bit that you had and then watch Jesus take that little bit you had and feed a crowd of what many think could be as many as 20,000 people? Can you imagine the story you would go home and tell your mum? You won't believe it, mum. That snack you gave me, Jesus fed everybody with it. Imagine how that one moment changed his life. The difference it may have made in his family. Through him, Jesus met a need and beyond. So finally, through this, we see Jesus puts us in a place of crisis, producing character so that it will point us to Christ. Verse 12 says, when they were filled, so Jesus feeds all the people, says, when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Here, Jesus uses them as conduits of his work for something greater. He sends them out to collect the leftovers. Now, that's surprising, yes? That there's leftovers. Jesus didn't just make enough for the group to eat, but he made more than enough for the group. Why? If Jesus has the power to create enough food for that many people out of five little loaves and two small fishes, then surely Jesus knows exactly how much he needs to create to feed all of those people. But instead of creating exactly what he needs to feed all those people, he creates beyond what he needs to feed all those people. Why? Why would he do that? Two possible reasons I can think of as I look through these passages that seem to to point to a reason why he would do that. And one is simply to overwhelm them with his power. Can I create enough? I can create enough and more. So they have to collect more. They have to collect extra. Can you imagine being a part of that collection? But then it also tells us more, and Luke, Luke particularly points this out in his version of it. It also tells us that one of the reasons that Jesus created more is so that he would send the disciples out into the crowd so that while they're collecting the food, they can hear what the people are saying about Jesus. So while they're gathering up the leftovers, they're hearing the people murmur, wow, this must be the prophet. This Jesus who created everything, he must be more than just some great guy. There must be something more. Which is why the very next thing Luke tells us, and and John even hints at it as we, we come to the next part, is he asks the disciples, after they've gone through the crowd, after they've gathered all this, he says to them, who are people saying that I am? You went out there and you collected up the food and you saw what I could do. What are they saying about me? Some are saying you're John the Baptist. Some are saying you're Elijah. Some are saying you're the prophet. That's great, man. Now, who do you say that I am? 
Now, they've watched Jesus. Jesus has deliberately made them part of this for that question. Who do you say I am? You're Jesus, the son of the living God. Faith requires action. And you'll notice that even though they're dismayed and even though they're overwhelmed, at every step of the way, the disciples obey. They do what Jesus asks at every moment. Faith requires sacrifice. It requires obedience. Faith starts with little things. So obey what you know now. I can't tell you how many people have come to me over the years and asked me in one form or another, how do I know the will of God for my life? And the answer is really very simple. Do what you know to do now. That's the answer. Do what you know to do now. And Jesus will take care of the rest. When you know what to obey in that moment, do that. When crisis comes, follow. Doesn't always bring good outcome. Consider Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. But it ends with those verses that tell us some were sawn in two. Some were crucified. Some were hanged. Some were boiled. So following in faith doesn't always end in cheeriness. But it always ends in glory. God will always do what is good and right. So verse 14 says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. So being involved in that miracle, in that moment, they come out and they say, we are certain this is the Messiah. So why did Jesus do this miracle? That's why. Why is Jesus putting you in a place of crisis over and over and over and over again? That's the reason of a truth. I know he is Jesus, the Son of God. Responding to God's activity. Every day, we live ordinary, mundane lives. Just waiting to be inspired. We, we go to work, we go to school, we do our chores. We're just wanting to be made to feel excited about something. And that's why these people ran around the lake. They ran around the lake because they wanted to see something exciting. They wanted to hear something new. People following Jesus were were just like that. We, We wonder sometimes why we don't see God working mightily in our lives. Could it be because we're just not looking? We're not paying attention. Also... When was the last time you chased Jesus around a lake to hear him? We've got to be seeking him, listening to him, 
Because the truth is, even in the mundane lives that we live, the day in, the day out, every day you face a, a, a crisis of belief in one form or another. Sometimes great and sometimes small, but every day you are facing a crisis of belief in Jesus. God wants you to use that to strengthen your faith, to be a stronger believer. He wants to use you to do great things. And maybe it's to change the world, like Hudson Taylor or the Apostles. Or maybe it's to be like most of the apostles that we know nothing about, but who served God to the very end of their days. The first miracle that he wants to perform in each and every one of our lives is the miracle of salvation. The miracle of saving us from our sin. His primary interest in you is your spiritual need. Then having met that need... He wants you to keep growing in trust, growing in faith of who he is. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to see this glorious miracle. And we are reminded that so often in our lives we are put in places where we are so deeply overwhelmed, but reminded that it's not in our resources that we find strength, but in you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, to remember that what little we have is enough for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.